Blog Talk Radio. Too much salt can drive up blood pressure and increased risk for stroke and heart disease, two leading causes of death in the U.S. Most Americans eat more than double the amount of salt recommended by experts. It can come from places other than the salt shaker, in canned goods like soup and packaged foods like frozen dinners. It's also hiding in breads and cereals. Read food labels, enjoy more fresh fruits and vegetables, and look for low-sodium alternatives. For more information, visit www.cdc.gov. A message from CDC. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys, and you can become a fan on Facebook. Just look up Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Also, I'm on Instagram now. Lots of cool pictures. Tag me. You might win a prize. For those of you who listen, you know I give away movie tickets, gift cards, books, uh, downloads on iTunes, all types of things. So I encourage you to follow or become a fan or tag me on Instagram. You might win something. I want to say thank you to all the fans, past 860,000 downloads. Wow, you guys are amazing. And again, just want to say thank you for all your support and helping the show grow. Before we get the show started, I want to tell you about something that's happening for Black History Month. In the past, you've celebrated black history, and you've been inspired by it. Now it's time to help make it with AT&T 28 Days and the Making History Happen Challenge. Go to att.com slash 28 days to check it out and join the movement. They've got three teams of people who want to leave their own footprint on history. And throughout February, those three teams will compete in a series of challenges. On the website, you can meet the teams involved, show your support for them, and watch videos of them making part in the challenge. One of the team coaches is Warren Sutton. He's a tech guru. And I really like when he talks about being a mentor. I have been a mentor before for young people, and I am constantly, for all the listeners, you know, if you listen to my show, I don't like people complaining about the youth. They can't read. They drop out of school. They can't tie their shoe. What are you doing to fix this issue? If you're not doing anything to fix it, don't talk to me. But I'm always encouraging you to be a mentor to them. Be an angel. Be a light to them. It can really change a young person's life. So I encourage you to join the movement. Get involved in the AT&T 28 Days Making History Happen Challenge at att.com slash 28 days. Well, today, wow, hair, 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 and more hair. Oh, my God. Do you have a hair story? I know you have a hair story. If you don't have one, your friend has one, your neighbor has one, somebody at your job has a hair story. Well, these two women decided to write about the hair of African Americans and the history of the hair of African Americans, starting all the way back before slavery to present day. Uh, This is the second edition of the book, It's a revised and updated hair story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. The authors are Ayana D. Bird and Lori L. Tharps. They are on the phone this morning. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Wow, you guys covered a lot. I mean, it could have been a 500-page book. Seriously, it could have been. (laughs) Absolutely. It could have been like a six-volume book. It could have been a six-volume book. (laughs) Uh, definitely a six volume. Oh my God! Of course, there's so much to go into. Uh, I just want to read a little bit. This was um, one of the quintessential parts I thought of the book. It's um, 
an excerpt from Maya Angelou's autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Wouldn't they be surprised when one day I woke up out of my black, ugly dream and my real hair, which was long and blonde, would take the place of the kinky mask that Mama wouldn't let me straighten? Because I was really white, and because a cruel fairy stepmother who was understandably jealous of my beauty, had turned me into a too-big Negro girl with nappy hair, broad feet, and the space between her teeth that would hold a number two pencil. Mm. Mm. That's it. That's it right there, you know. Um, Lori, what was one of the most challenging parts of writing, do you think, uh, writing the book? Probably the most challenging thing was the fact that Ayana and I really – were the first people to decide to put together, uh, you know, an actual resource of history about our hair. We, act, we really couldn't turn to, you know, the first book that was written about the history of black people in the hair or all the other books. There wasn't any. So we really had to go to primary sources for all of our information. Um, we had to look at European um, uh, journals from the 15th century where they were, you know, the explorers were first, you know, um, exploring West Africa and looking at their records of descriptions of what they saw on Africans' hair, heads, you know, in terms of hairstyles. Mm-hmm. And, and luckily, because African hairstyles were so beautiful and intricate and important, they took note of yeah. them. And so, excuse me, so, and then the, I mean, just throughout history, I mean, up until even the, looking in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we were looking at magazine articles, we were interviewing the relatives of Madame C.J. Walker, of Annie Turnbull Malone, we couldn't just, again, look at the previous books or the encyclopedia entries, and when we first started researching, even, you know, Google didn't even exist, so we were on the ground, you know, running around the United States of America, um, talking to real people and looking for primary sources in order to put this, you know, incredible history together. Uh, Ayana, what was something that you learned that you you thought you knew but you changed your mind about something, some unique fact? I thought I knew before we started researching the book, and as Lori said, this was before the Internet was really a place that you could trust for the truth. Do you remember back mm-hmm. when the internet started? It was like, oh, you read that on the internet. It can't be true. That's when we were doing it. Right, right. Oh, I remember internet like text. There were no pictures. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I went into working on this book knowing the name Madam C.J. Walker, knowing that she was the first self-made black female millionaire, but I thought she invented the hot comb. And you can still find that fact on the Internet, but you can also find Mm. in a lot of places the truth of what she did. And I did not know that she came after Annie Turnbull Malone, who who she worked for and who was the first black woman to really become a business force behind black hair. And that was something I did not know at all, that somehow had not made its way into the black history that I knew before we started doing research on the book. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be surprised about the hot comb being invented. I believe you stated in France, correct? Yeah, the French man invented it. Yeah, and And she was um, the person uh, who came up with the system that we, you know, the press and curl, but she did not invent the actual comb. But, Lori, talk to the uh, the listeners about the word poro and and the meaning of that and where that came from. Yeah. Well, that was, that's, again, kind of taking off exactly what Ayana was talking about, is it's, it's amazing how little 
we understand about not just Madam C.J. Walker, but that there was an actual, I mean, there were more, it was Madam C.J. Walker, Annie Turnbull Malone, Sarah Spencer Washington, there were quite a few entrepreneurial black women who were um, creating products and were employing other black women to sell their products and work in their salons and, and start up their own businesses, much like, you know, an Avon lady we think of today. And it's, and it's um, unfortunate that we think Avon is the one, is that, you know, company that gave women the opportunity to be their own kind of entrepreneurs, when in fact these more than one black woman, you know, Madam C.J. Walker is only one that kind of people know, and we give great credit to her her relatives who have kept her name and image and history alive. But Annie Turnbull Malone, actually, as Ayana just said, she was one of the first black women to be a millionaire, if not before. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, if I'm saying this correctly, she was actually a millionaire. In, in addition to, I don't, I don't want to say at the same time, but she too, you know, made millions with selling hair products and creating a system that you mentioned, the Poro system, which was a um, school uh, for black women to learn how to do uh, hair. And much like we know of Madison C.J. Walker, women would become Poro um, school candidates and they would work at the Poro school and learn the Poro method and sell Annie Mm -hmm. Turnbull Malone's products. And today you still have women who have their Poro certificates. And this was a lot of them were based in Chicago, but they were actually all over the United States. And in fact, Madam C.J. Walker began her training under Annie Turnbull Malone. Um, So this Poro system, people, again, there's still a lot of um, people who, because the Poro system and the Poro schools, and that actually... um, I believe her um, that the name Poro comes from a, a, a Mende word um, Mende, from yes. Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this tradition of black women doing hair as a form of economic empowerment, as a way of serving the, their fellow black women, this is a long history and long tradition within our culture and community that, again, many people only think of Madison C.J. Walker, but there were more way more than Madam C.J. Walker doing this. And um, unfortunately, Annie Turnbull Malone, who was also quite successful, one of the reasons we don't hear so much about her is because she unfortunately fell into financial um, distress after a bad divorce, and she lost much of her personal wealth before she died. And unfortunately, her family members haven't been as successful in, um, you know, getting her name out there into, you know, in current circumstances. But there are others, thankfully, there are others who are championing a, you know, uh, a resource library with all of her information, and that's really um, positive to see. I mean, I'm sure there's so many things that we just don't know because usually history is written by the winners. So there's much as a society, as a culture that we just are not aware of. Let's talk about men. You don't just talk about women's hair in this book. You talk about men's hair. Let's skip ahead a little bit and talking about uh, men and their conch. Um, we can, I know a lot of listeners might have uh, know Malcolm X's story and uh, his get, getting his hair uh, with lye and burned. Um, talk to me about, um, Ayana, some of the experiences you had talking to men. And, and were men open about using products? Um, on their hair to straighten it? Were you able to interview any uh, men from back in the day, so to speak? We, I'm really happy. You know, I grew up in the 80s in Philadelphia, which is such a hair city. And in the 80s, Philadelphia was not just a hair city for women. It was also a time of younger black men really experimenting with their hair. High top fades, um, 
styles that I don't even know that that off to the side. Oh, the Gumby. That's what it was called. And <laughs> oh my God! Yes, yes. <laughs> and different parts in the hair, and also the Jerry curl. If you're talking about the '80s, and even though that was just something that I would see every single day leaving my house, and it was it was it put in my mind that men were also very exper- Black men could be very experimental with their hair, and so when we started working on this book. We knew that it wasn't just a woman's story. I, just as our book is a history book, it's not a beauty book. You know, it's really just looking at the changing economics behind hair and the changing aesthetic meanings behind hair. And we know that that story also includes men. And we wanted to look at why – we wanted to think more about things that we'd heard about. You know, we both read the autobiography of Malcolm X and read about the conking and heard, seen pictures of men in the past who would conk their hair. And we wanted to understand more, well, why were men doing that? Like, why would people – I also wanted to understand more Submit about the Jerry curl, Submit which was hmm? – I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah, why, why, would, why would they submit themselves to such pain – um, for beauty exactly, or style. It's easy for you know. us all of these decades later to either giggle about it or to say, oh, that was crazy that they did it and to, you know, not really look deeper. But we're like, there was something really, there was a lot of meaning behind, behind when, why men would put something so danger, painful onto their scalp. Mm-hmm. And a mm-hmm. lot of it had to, I mean, of course, part of it was style and trend, but even deeper than that were these ideas of respectability and getting being, being able to get jobs, being able to appeal, not appeal is not the right word, but to lessen the fears of white employers who might actually be afraid of what black hair normally looks like. And if, you know, it's easy to say, if that's very, very different than saying, oh, he straightened his hair to look white. That's not it at all. It's very much like he needed a job, and this was what was expected, and we were not in the 20s when men were conking their hair. At a time of being so economically independent that we could just be like, oh, forget it, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to... um." A lot of men made the choice to change their hair because they needed employment, and there were not a lot of options of where they could actually get hired. And also, I was going to just say... I was just going to say that the boys, the men also, I mean, the reality was, though, that the men were also told, just as women, that their hair was animal-like and fur-like, and men were equally impacted by feeling inferior about their hair. And the the, the conking and the straightening, um, while it was respectable in some ways, it also, though, they there was still that also sense that their hair, kinky and curly, was ugly, unattractive, and straightening it made it better. And that feeling that we know women have, men have those same issues. And we, when we talk to men to contem- you know, in the 90s and even today, we still find young boys and men who are still suffering with this idea that they don't have um, nicer hair or softer hair. Um, we have talked to little boys who were like seven years old who were sad because people were telling them that their hair was peasy. And um, mm, men yes. who, who remember still when they were younger, um, older men telling us that they wanted their hair to be a different type of hair. And they're echoing the same the same comments that we hear women talk about. And so when we look through history and hear how men were altering their hair, even in slavery, because the the straighter the hair, even on a man, would, as Ayana was saying, 
led to more economic opportunity. So everything yeah. that we know about the black kind of trauma with our hair, it wasn't that it just affected women. It affected men equally. It's just that we kind of judge That's... women and men differently. But the issue of feeling inferior about our hair was felt by both men and women. And at the same time, we also, we also in the book really wanted to look at the cultural meaning behind hair. And I think culturally, mm-hmm. if you think about black barbershops, I mean, we've, we've seen it on sitcoms. Anyone who's ever stepped foot into a black barbershop, just the camaraderie that goes on in there, that was also something that we wanted to document. That is very, I mean, I think salon culture is also very important for black women, but barbershop culture is its own thing that was worthy of... Oh, barbershop, oh, barbershop is sacred. I mean, like a woman, mm-hmm. you don't like really go into the barbershop. I used to go out with a guy when I was younger um, who owned a barbershop, and look... I could I could hang in there for a little bit, but there would be like a certain point. You'd be like, okay, babe, I'll see you later. And it was like, she would be like, okay, you gotta, you know, you gotta leave now because you know we need to do our, you know, men folk, you know, discussion and everything. You know, let's talk about the natural team natural versus you know team straight or weave. Um, That is like still hot and heavy. If your hair is not natural, like now there's a big natural trend. You know, people are blogging, tweeting, YouTubing, everything. People can, you know, almost wear it to work, you know, high-powered positions, have natural hair. Uh, what's the woman? She's um, uh, uh, like a high level at uh, Xerox. Um, oh, oh, right, gosh, right, you right. You know who I'm talking about. You know I'm talking right, about. Right, absolutely. Anyway, yeah, she has a short Africa. natural. Yeah, mm-hmm. she has a short natural. But it's like if you don't have a natural, if your hair is not natural, then, like, you're not black. I mean, it's, like, bad, you know. And then vice versa, if you have a, like, then people have to compete with the weave. The weave always looks perfect. Right. And if you do <laughs> your hair natural, meaning, or you just press and curl or something, you have succumbed to the weather. You can't compete to the woman who has the weave. <laughs> you know, it comes to, like, competing for a man. You know, I mean, just saying, these are thoughts. These are thoughts. Right, talk, right. talk to me, Lori. Talk to me about team, team natural versus, you know, the unnatural. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's, okay, so it's really exciting. It's really exciting to see this kind of new natural movement. I mean, by it's, it's led to a lot of great things happening in terms of black women feeling more free to do things with their hair, allowing them to experiment, and allowing them to get to know their own natural texture, which is something we, and you know, better kind of. products. They're better Absolutely. products now. They are There's definitely a lot better of products. products. And, we're, and, and that alone, also, the products, a lot of them are made by black people, which is an exciting economic mm-hmm. development as well. So yes. the natural yes. hair movement in general has been, I think, extremely exciting to watch. We were really excited to document it, um, to see how much things have changed. Um, but it, likewise, we noticed that at the same time the natural hair movement is exploding, we also have a real big weave revolution happening where suddenly it's okay to wear a weave. A lot more people are feeling free to weave and not have to hide it. And weaves are becoming a lot more, it, this sounds silly, but natural looking. I mean, you don't have to get a weave that looks like mm-hmm. you bought it off the Barbie doll, but you can get a weave. Yes. You can get an Afro weave. You can get a, a yep. pinky weave. You know? So I think what we're looking at is instead of the versus, I mean, people want to make it team natural versus, and you notice there is no other team. It's not team natural versus right. team straight. Like there right. isn't the say? other side. You know? <laughs> right. And and we know that you can wear natural and have a weave on. I mean, that's the thing is that we we are we don't want to see the verses. We hope that we can develop this appreciation for, like we said on our we say on our website, Hair Story Online, all textures welcome. You know, 
Mm-hmm. If people are exploring what they like, it's whether it's natural or it's natural today and tomorrow, it's a weave. Like that's what black hair is about. We from that's why we went back to Africa to to establish the fact that our hair has always been a source of of showing who we were as people, as individuals. It was a source of identity. So if you felt, you know, really powerful, if you felt, you know, you wanted to express, you were, you know, expecting um, your husband to come home from war, if you were, you know, the top dog in the cult, in the community, you expressed it with your hair. So today, as people are experimenting, that's what we want people to get from this book is, we have always used our hair to express ourselves, and instead of competing with one another, like, wear what you want as long as you know that your hair is your most powerful asset of expression. Right. Now, Ayana, let's talk about this economic issue because there are whites owning black hair care product companies. Um, and then there's the huge Asian market taking, you know, when you walk up and down in the black community, you go into the stores, behind the counter there are Asians. Exactly. And um, they're not black people, or if they're a black person, they're like the sales rep on the floor, but they don't own the store. <laughs> they're not purchasing from. The, I mean, that's the truth. I'm just telling you the yeah. truth. They're the, the, you know, they're not the they're not the the distributor, you know. Um, and so, talk to me about this issue and how that has uh, developed. I would say over time. When Lori and I first wrote the book, we she really. Um, insisted that we include an entire chapter on the business of black hair. Whereas I was mm-hmm. like, oh, is there really enough of the story to tell? Isn't it something that we can weave through the other chapters? And she was like, no, the no, story of no, no, no. black hair, hair <laughs> is its own thing. I mean, really, it's its own book. So we did a dedicated chapter, and it's really one of the most more depressing chapters in the book because by the end, what we learned is exactly what you just said. Black people spend more money on our hair than other in America than other races of people. However, we do not control the money. We only really were economically in control of the salon culture and barbershops. But as far as who is distributing weave hair, making the weave hair, selling the weave hair, selling the hair for braids, um, owning the product lines, those were not black people. And they were communities that were not giving money back. If you look in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of black-owned hair care companies that were putting money back into the black community. They were sponsoring scholarships for college students. They were paying, they were helping um, with community organizations. They were really putting the money back to the people who they were getting rich off of. That ended Mm -hmm. in multinational companies and white-owned companies came in and bought these companies. They were not thinking, oh, let's keep up our scholarship program in Chicago. So it was very depressing to see that outside of salon and barbershop culture, the money was not staying within the black communities on black hair. Today, so in the new version of the book, we did a new chapter on the business of black hair. And even though the new chapter only covers 13 years, what's happened in those 13 years is groundbreaking and amazing. And it's also positive because thanks to distribution being made so much easier by the Internet, there has been a, there's an influx of black, mostly female entrepreneurs who are able to get into the hair care business. Uh, yeah, we knew, you know, we already that. had a Carol's daughter, but now there are 
so many companies. There's Jane Carter. There's Oyen Handmade. There's, I mean, I could go on and on about the different lines that are out there. And these women, whether they're selling them out of their own salons or other salons or on the Internet, were able to really carve out a place where if you decide you want to um, – support black-owned businesses in hair care. It's, very, it's much easier now than it used to be. And, and also the Internet has expanded with its capabilities of the social media. I mean, YouTube, people are going on YouTube and giving whole lessons and whole series um, about how to take care of your hair. I had Melinda Williams. She's an actress, and she has a really great short quaff, and she has a whole little video series about, you know, how she takes care of her hair. Because, again, it goes back to knowledge. And the funny thing is, you know, some people don't know, even this is going to another people's history, but some other cultures, Jewish women have very thick, kinky hair, and they relax their hair. And, mm-hmm. and people don't know about that. That's also something because they don't want to have the kinky hair. Um, right. Because if you think about um, biology and um, environmental issues, if you're in a hot environment, you talk about this in your book, it's like an air conditioning. The curly, kinky hair right. is protective for the scalp. So there's a reason right. for it. And depending on where you live, that's why your hair is a certain texture. You know, it's, it's environmental. It's not because of your genes are bad or negative. Actually, right. your genes are good. You right. know, I mean, they're exactly. good for that environment, you know. Exactly. So um, exactly. You, guys, you guys get a great job. We've kind of run out of time. But I'm going to be giving away a copy of the book uh, for people who follow me at Joy Keys become a fan on Facebook or tag me on Instagram, you might be able to win a copy of the revised and updated hair story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. Ayana and Lori, thank you so much, so much for doing this. It's really needed, and I wish you guys much success. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. That was both You guys have a great time. Saturday. <laughs> you too. <laughs> bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have another show coming up at 1130 with actress Yolanda Ross, so stay tuned for that. You can call in for that, 646-929-0368. Too much salt can drive up blood pressure and increased risk for stroke and heart disease, two leading causes of death in the U.S. Most Americans eat more than double the amount of salt recommended by experts. It can come from places other than the salt shaker, in canned goods like soup, and packaged foods like frozen dinners. It's also hiding in breads and cereals. Read food labels, enjoy more fresh fruits and vegetables, and look for low-sodium alternatives. For more information, visit www.cdc.gov. A message from CDC.